You're listening to Play on Words on CFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the Husanich and Songhees territories of the Sanchothan and Lekwungen-speaking peoples. It's story time at Play on Words. For this episode, we'll be featuring a couple of stories from two local authors, Gina Hay and Zoe Garrett. Our first story is by Zoe, entitled Fenceler Saga, a story about a young woman visiting her estranged mother after the passing of her father. Here is Fenceler Saga, read by Oren. Shut up and listen. Scald sing now the saga of Leia, long lost, and the ways in which she was come to Iowa. Seven hours she sailed the solid streams, the interstate. Hard behind her heels she left those halls of harmony and higher learning in Oberlin, Ohio, once opportunity allowed. Yet not since the years when she was young had Leia laid eyes on Maggie, her father's forsaker. Friends five years on Facebook, but no closer had they come to the company kept between parent and progeny. Now cold condensation coated her coffee cup and frappuccino-flavored water washed down her worry when Leia steered her silver sedan off of U.S. Route 67. She peered at the printed page that planned her path. Follow Route 52 five miles, then take the turn on to 576th Street and find the first right. A metal mailbox marked Magdalena and Elaine equips the entrance. It had been truthfully too late to turn back for some time, but as the unknown neared, Leia let herself be lured into one last contemplation. Sixteen years her sire had scarcely spoken of his estranged spouse, not a hint of the hardship that hastened her from their home, such that Leia wondered why she was welcomed with wide arms after her father's unexpected ascension into the afterlife. Was it only out of obligation that Maggie offered her daughter a respite from Rue? a refuge from returning home to reproach? Once past the postbox, tightly trimmed trees whose unburdened branches bent upwards ran in regimented rows. Their ranks ranged down the road for more than a hectare. On the other side of the orchard, a white-sided shed stretched sideways from the path, now hard-packed dirt with space enough to pull a painstaking U-turn in a tractor or a truck that towed a trailer behind. Indeed, the truncated cab of a semi, uncoupled from any cargo, crouched across from the carriage doors of the dingy farm building, Leia drove in dual ruts, worn down by hard use that lay the length of this land, and let them lead her at last to the front of a farmhouse. She stopped her car, then simply sat. The house remained solid, squat and silent before her. It barely brought to mind a woman who would wash her hands of wifely duty, desert her daughter, and deny the divinity of the Savior, the Son of God, to go instead to Iowa and insist upon living a lesbian lifestyle. That was the talk around town at home, anyhow, that Leia had overheard since she was knee-high, the church hens in her congregation clucking their tongues and casting censure at the child who came from such a sinner and surely would sink to the same status if her father ever failed to keep her faithful. In the lowering light, Leia left her car and locked it, dried her palms on her cut-off denim, but did not dare approach the door. Instead, she took a trail that threaded through the untamed lawn between the outbuilding, bastion of orchard's business, and the abode that held hearth and heart, the home her mother had made for herself. She curved around the corners of the house and came to the back, where a garden grew that could stock a greengrocer's. Great tubs held sweet corn, squash, spicy peppers, and potatoes. Peas were tied to a trellis with tomatoes and beans. Bushes of edible herbs hugged the rich earth of raised beds. Carrots and cucumbers competed for sun with cauliflower and cabbage. Winding her way through this wondrous empire to emerge near the edge of the crops that enclosed the area to control the cold prairie winds come the winter, Leia forged ahead into the forest, finding her footing over rocks and roots that she might see the meandering Mississippi already a monstrous mile across the base of the bluffs beyond the trees. Its breadth the border between two states, Leia had caught sight of the cascade from the car when she crossed into Clinton, 
but she wanted to watch the wide weight of water from this western bank and know that she saw every certain aspect of her history, the house, family, and friends, church and college, every deed and destination now separated from herself. Before she could gain her goal, nor even glimpse the glimmer of water through trees, she stumbled upon a stand of ash surrounding a space swept clear of brush. In this knoll, a woman knelt on both knees before a flat boulder, a bag of brown velvet beside her hand. A plate held back her honey-blonde hair, a solid figure filled out her sundress. The first lines of laughter lined her face. Dirt adorned her bare feet. She stood where she saw her spectator, brushed bark from her legs, and said, Leia, let me look at you, such a lovely young lady. The pictures you post hardly compare to having you here. Maggie folded her fingers around Leia's, a faint smile on her face. Did you have dinner? Elaine and I already ate. I assume she sent you out here to search for me, a surprise this sweet she would savor. Her daughter demurred. I decided on my own, though I did not know you would be out. I only wanted a walk after being at the wheel for so long, although I suppose I should have sent word that I'd shown up. You're fine, so long as you haven't flattened my flower beds, said Maggie. I reckon you're responsible enough to ramble where you want. You're an adult, after all, assuaged, Leia asked. What occupation brought you outside at this hour? Finding firewood, for the most part. We form a fire on the solstice, and I prefer to do preparation prior to the day, since ensuring safety occasionally entails uprooting the undergrowth. Those, then? Leia pointed to the pebbles that populated the boulder, each engraved with a figure from the elder Fatark. Those runes obtained by Odin One-Eye when he hung for nine nights from the great tree, Yggdrasil, its groaning arms his gallows. But Maggie brushed her stones into the bag, saying only, A bit of a ritual. It helps me relax when I find I need some reassurance. The dim gray of dusk had fully descended by the time the two women returned from the house to retire through the rear door. Crickets now chirped in place of cicadas, and a cool breeze brought relief as the land let go of daytime heat at last. The light inside was lively, the house gave off a welcome. Weathered boots dwelt near a mat where Maggie wiped the dirt from her feet. This first room functioned as a space for creation, with a big butcher block table and bins stored on shelves along the walls filled with fabric, skeins of yarn, and sewing supplies. Glass jars held jam, herbs, and honey, hagstones and staves. In one corner, a small collection of succulents clustered under a sunlamp. Leia lagged behind as Maggie led her up a singular step into a hallway, floored with hardwood, that heralded the rest of the house. The kitchen was kitted with copper cookware. A colorful cloth runner draped the dining room table, dividing the dark top in two. Did you need dinner? Maggie asked again, as Leia advanced around the staircase that ascended to the second floor. She found the front parlor comfortably furnished with a fireplace, television, throw rugs, and several overstuffed sofas, one of which was occupied. The woman Maggie had made her wife wore her lesbianism loudly. In her short-cropped hair, her cuffed sleeves on a floral print shirt, the loose cut of her khakis. She was stocky, her shoulders toned, her legs unshaven. She sat angled so she could concentrate on composing her crochet without covering the cat laid lengthwise on her lap. She lifted her head when Leia looked in, but before she could begin to speak, Leia had backed away. I had a substantial sandwich on the road, she said to her mother, but thank you. Maggie tisked and took Leia to make the acquaintance of her wife. I would walk over there to welcome you, Elaine said, but I'm weighed down by Sir Percy here. Leia said, that's no problem, it's a pleasure. She shook hands, surprised by the catch of Elaine's calluses on her palm. What would you like to do now, Leia? said Maggie. We could watch something. Leia shook her head. Sorry, but I just want to sleep. I've been studying constantly for finals, and following the drive here, I could do with catching up. Maggie agreed and guided Leia to the guest room. She bade her daughter good night, but rather than reply at once, Leia confessed, I can't decide what to call you. 
Maggie works well. Mom might be a bit much for me to manage right this moment. When Maggie left, Leia lay awake for long hours in the low light, listening to the nocturnal noises of this new niche in the scope of her experience. Heat hung high in the air already when Leia headed downstairs the next day to search for sustenance. Nobody was there to notice, not even the cat, but a note curled in on itself on the kitchen counter for her. A compact cursive hand read, Feel free to raid the fridge for food. Elaine left early for work, and I am out to inspect the hives here and at the Hansons. Try the homemade honey. I'll be back before lunchtime, Elaine, later in the afternoon. Maggie. After a rigorous rifling through the contents of every cabinet and drawer, Leia grabbed herself a bowl of granola and Greek yogurt garnished with honey and plum preserves. She poked at the French press, but put it down because she didn't want to bother going back to her bedroom for her phone so she could search for the steps to use the coffee contraption before she'd had caffeine. Thankfully, there was tea in bags and a kettle by the tap over the stove. Once breakfasted, Leia browsed the internet but soon became bored, burnt out from finals, estranged from her mother, yet here to escape executing her father's estate. Having never remarried, she was his closest remaining relative. Few opportunities for easy entertainment emerged, short of exploration. Maggie had left to lead a life unlike her last one, a life that Leia knew little about, aside from what aspects appeared infrequently on Facebook. She proceeded to peruse the parlor, and what she found gave her pause. On the mantel, amidst photographic memories, a Mijolner pendant strung on silver chains surrounded a stand that supported a sculpture of the world tree wrought out of twisted wire and encompassed in a ring of runes. On the table, a book that related to how to read the same and employ their power was propped open to a page on proper disposal of spell staves. Unsheathed swords displayed in a stand occupied the corner that could not have been seen from the base of the stairs. Leia mounted then to the master bedroom and made her way inside. Immediately, she was drawn to the dresser, draped with delicate cloth, where collections of curious items were clustered around framed images, idols of gods she had never imagined to be invoked in sincerity in this age. Among the offerings on the altar were amber, assorted candles, cat and boar figurines, and fresh flowers for Freya, for Frigg, two birch twigs and a tin of tea, for Thor, an empty bottle of brown beer, but it was the offerings to Odin that Leia returned to most often. A knife lay there, and a knot carved into wood, the god of knowledge's three triangles intertwined. Leia tried to touch it, but her fingers trembled. She'd seen the symbol sported by skinheads and white supremacists who held up their heritage in the hopes that history would validate their hatred. She could not comprehend how she had come here without catching the barest hint that the inhabitants here had bought into those beliefs. She'd heard enough of it at home from boys in her high school who had only wanted a way to self-worth when not enough work was left for them to foresee a future worth the fight. And finally, Leia had unlearned enough of it at university not to allow the undertow to take root in her thoughts, but her mother's token troubled her. By the time Maggie arrived back at the house after attending to the apiaries, Sir Percy had perched on Leia's legs so she could provide him with optimal pets since she hadn't moved from her seat on the side of the bed where she could stare down the dresser and its devotional display. When Maggie discovered her, Leia demanded an explanation, said, I expected better than another betrayal from you. That wasn't my wish whatsoever, Maggie said. What is it that worries you so? That, the three triangles. Her mother took up the talisman. The Valknut? The skinhead symbol. Maggie sat at her daughter's side. Sir Percy decided he was done and decamped downstairs. I don't dispute that. Why else but white witchcraft would you want to worship it then? It's the sigil of Odin, Wanderer, gallows god, and patron of poetry and wisdom, ecstasy and sorcery. Elaine says she first saw him when she was eleven. 
So you support your spouse's supremacist views? That still makes you suspect. Maggie's mouth pursed. Here in this house, we practice the paganism of the prose and poetic Edda. We make every effort for equality in our endeavors, especially when attempts are made to appropriate our religion for a reprehensible agenda. Is that what you think of the Holy Trinity, too? Is that why you took off? I left to lead my own life, to pursue my personal empowerment. I no longer loved the God who ordered my obedience through fear, my fealty through submission. I required years before I was ready to re-engage with religion. They respect me, the deities of the Norse, and don't demand devotion through duress. You still might have interacted with me more, Leah muttered. Maggie sighed. I'm sorry. I'd allowed others to assign aspirations to me, but it wasn't until you were born that I wondered if it was really what I wanted. If I'd remained, I'd have resented you for the restrictions you represented. I decided that to damage my daughter would be worse than to desert her, and so I avoided an active role until you were an adult. There was still the stigma and shame of a sinner for a mother. Yes. Dad died of a drug overdose. I don't know what to do anymore. Maggie held her hand. Do you want a hug? Yes. The sun sank through the tops of the ash trees as Elaine stacked branches inside the brick ring to build the base of the bonfire. Leia shivered in the sudden shadow and slapped at the stings of mosquitoes. Maggie handed her a glass of homemade mead. The first flames flickered, caught, and climbed. A column of smoke rose into the still bright sky of the summer solstice. Leia sat on the boulder, basking in the last blush of the day and the warmth of the fire. Maggie leaned against Elaine, enclosed in her wife's embrace. They clinked their cups together in cheers. You celebrate the solstice because it's spiritually significant, Leia said. How should I honor this holiday? Replied her mother, you don't have to. And if I aspire to anyway? Elaine alternated in answering. There's no ritual that's required. Pagans practice however we please, but we give thanks to the gods, especially Freya and Freyr, for the fertility of the spring and the summer. We invite them to stop and share some of our meal and our mead. You may burn a morsel of your meat or pour out a portion of your draft, or dedicate it to them, and drink and eat as every day, and expect that they will receive in essence. Is there a goddess or god whose governance guides the family and future? For foresight, Frigg is renowned. When the Allfather roams, she reigns. The patron of craft, she is comfort and calm, very much a mother to my mind. Leia stood then to proceed with pouring libation in pagan prayer, and she felt, for the first time, that she was among friends. Next, we're going to hear Spinster, another story by Zoe Garrett. Just like Garrett's Fensler saga, which we just heard, Spinster is another modern fairy tale. Siobhan's mother said she was a changeling child. They moved to the country when she was little. Fay folk couldn't stand iron or exhaust, neon lights or noise. Siobhan asked, wouldn't you like your real baby back? Wouldn't she be less trouble? You are my child now, said her mother, and your sister may be the same. After all, she's eaten their food and learned their ways. She wouldn't like it here any more than you would like fairy court. Siobhan's first friends were alpacas. Her second were distaff and spindle. At fourteen, she could walk back twenty feet from the wheel. Summer days, she could travel twenty miles. The garden grew nettles, goldenrod, madder, and woad. City people brought her yarn at market and said things to her mother like luxury and artisanal. If they met Siobhan, they said things like rude and unfortunate. Siobhan was a changeling child. They couldn't see her eye color. They couldn't make her speak. She didn't go back to market. At 18, Mr. Prince came to see her work. He said things like couture and Milan. He said, 
I need a roomful. How many days do you need? September meant the nettles had been redded and dried again. The sheaves needed only to be broken and combed. Not many days at all. Sister, Siobhan called, guide my fingers and sharpen my focus. She twisted fiber into thread, transmuted thread into gold. Skeins heaped the shelves. Mr. Prince wrote her a check that made both her hands blur. The clothes I'll make with this will be magical, he said. Marry me, and we could hold court over the fashion world. I'd give you the happiest days of your life. Siobhan was a changeling child. She couldn't stand iron or exhaust, neon lights or noise. Finally, we have Gina Hay reading her own story, Colonia, a story within a story that speaks to the prevalence of colonialism in our modern society. Listen after the story to hear Gina share some of her insights and inspirations for writing this piece. Doris. Doris was bothered by the physical act of eating, looking at a salad and folding against the black plastic of a take-home container she felt a dim rush of panic. She had always been like this, suspicious of every meal on her plate, suspicious that all food was hiding something from her and that she would never be able to fully comprehend what this grand conspiracy was. Still, she ate. She tossed sideway glances at the housefly that had gotten trapped the plastic bag on the passenger seat of her Toyota. The fly now frantically buzzed circles inside it. She was trying to work the salad down before a job interview. An easy job that would require her to transfer old patient records at a dental clinic, all kept on physical paper, into a new digital system. The fly moved along the inner surface of the bag, she could tell because the plastic made a dim shushing noise as the fly walked across. Doris had been out of a job for a few weeks, this after spending the latter half of her twenties doing secretary work at her uncle's law firm. We've decided to go in another direction, he'd said, more to himself than to her. He'd been slowly wading through every employee he could replace, instead hiring twenty-somethings who would blush when he asked them what college had been like. Give me a break, she thought, dropping the solid container onto the plastic bag. She took her key out of the ignition and, in the bag, the fly stopped buzzing under the weight. The business owner shook Doris's hand and introduced himself as Dr. Abramovitz. He was a short man with blotchy skin, bushy eyebrows that had started graying. He seemed sympathetic. He wore a wan smile, perfect teeth, and a dental lab coat that fell to his stout knees. He had a limp in his step. He led Doris to what she'd assumed would be an office, but revealed itself to be one of the examination rooms. Excuse me, doctor, I... Miss Browse, was it? Don't worry, it's just a formality. Your resume looks perfect for the job. I'd say we can't have any patient records getting lost. This is valuable information, you see. And all this technology, well... None of us here can figure out all too much of it. 
He walked up to a tin platter of tools on the small room's back countertop, picked up a set of rubber gloves and a dentist's mirror. He lifted it to the light, and Doris felt watched. You can lay down on the chair there. It's just a formality. The last employee we hired, his teeth were falling apart. He didn't have insurance, nor did he have the money to get his teeth fixed. Eventually, he had my wife take a look. A real mess, more cavities than other of us had ever seen. And, well, he begged her to convince me to fix him up, and, and I did. If it's all right, it'll just be a formality. She nodded. Just a formality. He nodded again, almost cartoonish. She tiptoed over to the chair, gripped her pencil skirt as she sat herself down, heels tapping against a plastic footrest. From the window, she could see her car in the parking lot. Doris wondered whether she'd killed the fly and thought that maybe, if she had, she shouldn't have. She looked up at Abramovitz as he pulled gloves over his hands. She scratched her arm. How long has the practice been operating? The building looks to be pretty old by now. Old, yes. Pretty, no. He laughed. I opened the practice in 1971, meaning... Meaning 34 years. Quite old, then. Yes, it's it's been a while. But for me, you see, I keep myself young. Now, Miss Browse, have you ever seen a dragon kite? Can't say that I have. He motioned for her to open her mouth wide and lift it in the mirror. She heard the metal clanking against her teeth, tried to smile through the gaping. She remembered eating the salad. She remembered the sound of chewing. It's a real, how you phrase it, a rush. Kites bigger than people, shaped like dragons, I collect. I have seven now, in my garage. A real rush, indescribable, how deeply you start to care for your kites once you've flown them. She nodded. Her eyes teared up in the fluorescent lighting, and she blinked it all back, holding her eyelids closed for a couple seconds, listening to the mirror clink in her mouth. When she opened her eyes, she saw a handful of flies. Probably six or seven crawling across the ceiling. They moved like there wasn't a second to be wasted, or like they didn't know what it was to not move and keep moving. Greta. Greta's father covered her eyes with his calloused hands, then moved them down to lay the bridge of her nose. They'd found themselves alone, extended like watchtowers, amongst the excavated community farm field that her father operated. This all a short distance from the chain-link fences obstructing the thick vegetation, tamarind trees, and Chilean pines. She opened her eyes and could conjure up an image of the fields before last year's harvest. 
potato crops. From them had sprouted purple-white flowers that had killed two of the community horses when they got loose, proving to be toxic. They'd been their best horses. When Greta's father taught children how to ride, he'd saddle up Alonzo. Alonzo was young but patient. And for a horse, he was never vicious to the children. The other horse, Frida, had been the oldest horse. She'd bred every horse still alive now. She'd fret over her young and enjoy Greta's company. Now, cornstalks poked from the farm field's ditches, but the field still looked ravaged, about fifty yards of land burying all the unearthed soil like an offering or an apology. Greta's father's hands glided down a quarter inch until his thumbs lay vertical, resting on our cheekbones. The flies have left us this summer. It's a bad omen, is what it is. Unheimlich. We have to look out for our people. Without your sight or speech, your essence can breach the up, Maxime says. From overhead, you can tell which speck, dressed in white, is yourself. He moved his hands to her shoulders, pressing his lips together in contemplation. The Holy Almanac tells us, We live in synchrony. We must not defile our interlocking unities. We must purify for the sake of connectivity. Greta, I will remind you. The Holy Almanac tells us that, amongst us, across our community. There is a group of people partly unaware of yourself, unaware of one another. You are each other's leaders and each other's subordinates. You move in unison. You have the same purpose. You will discover this purpose only by disregarding the senses. He let go of her shoulders and Greta found her gaze still locked on the cornfields no bigger than twenty feet in diameter, planted to eventually help feed the community, community's growing population of almost three hundred members. She saw something growing there, at the back end of the field, taller than the corn that was sprouting, its stalk ragged like teeth. Her father wiped the sweat off his brow squinted at the impending summer, I want you to think about this. Together, from the up, do you, your brothers, and your sisters form a cycle? She nodded, to which he smiled blankly, turning towards the cattle pen, where community members were starting to gather to milk the goats. The oldest female would give birth again soon, and Greta's mother would act as the goat midwife. She, too, was standing there, looking stoic in her work clothes, hands gloved, carrying a tin bucket. She was frustrated, Greta knew. The community killed a goat every winter to attract female flies, which would then lay eggs, multiply, 
In summer, this had never been necessary. Now, they would have to pick a new goat to kill. Two in one year. Earlier that year, in 1971, Greta had decided to become a medic. She was early to decide, only 14, ten years since the community had been founded by Maxim himself, along with her father and a handful of others. This partly so she could be useful as soon as possible, tending to her community as the founders were starting to age. They showed symptoms of arthritis and Alzheimer's. Mostly, she wanted to be a medic because of how highly the Holy Almanac heralded the field of medicine, describing it as a sacred mother of connectivity. She'd been going to teaching lessons at the town medic's house. Ada, an elderly woman, was starting to lose her senses. She often forgot what year and season it was, stirred off into space, and soon wouldn't be a reliable medic anymore. Nonetheless, Ada was resourceful. She had taught Greta how to use maggots to heal wounds. The maggots could clear away dead tissue and disinfect. Felix, a younger boy, had gotten his knees and hands burned trying to help his parents start the nightly fire in the common grounds. He sat in a chair, looked down at his knee and winced as Greta settled the creatures on his wound, moving slow. Careful. Ada lifted her hands to cup Greta's. She moved them like surgical tools to spread out the maggots. Maxim says the flies have left us this summer. We treat their children with respect. We waste none of them. Later that day, after Greta's father locked the cattle pen and him and her mother left to go socialize at the communal fire, she returned to the cornfields, finding at its corner a newborn Venus flytrap. Its mouth gaped, pried open, unlike any plant she'd ever seen before, bearing a thick redness, waiting. Doris. Doris, since starting work at the dental office two weeks prior, had found herself plagued by houseflies. Still dressed in business casual, at midnight, she glared at her mattress. It lay lopsided, crooked, on the floor. Flies collected on her sheets at night like they were waiting for her to go to sleep. When she'd near it, they would all spring up, moved to the ceiling. Now, they'd multiplied and grown to the population of a small village, all buzzing and writhing in the dark. Evil f***ers. She called her brother. He barked instructions at her over the phone as she disinsected a Sunny D bottle with his old pocket knife. Doris grunted, biting off chunks of black duct tape with her teeth. For solidity. For solidity. Her apartment looked like a storm had torn it wide open, like someone had lived there in hiding, but had packed their things, wanting to get out as soon as possible, to flee the country and never come back to the debris. 
There was underwear strewn over the carpets, collecting dust. Dishes piled up on every countertop. She'd find empty beer cans and drawers, and under her bed, her brother Jonathan lived a few hours north, in Nanaimo. He told her to take it easy and maybe clean the dishes before drawing conclusions. There's so many of them, it feels like an elaborate setup, like like I'm being watched. You're not being watched, Doris. You need to take better care of your apartment. It's a shit heap. If the flies don't leave once it's all clean, call your landlord. There might be an infestation. Didn't that one guy live there before you, the one who got kicked out for jacking off all day for moaning? Or was that your last place? That, that was the last one. There was some rushing noise on the other line. Jonathan was sorting through his mail. He'd do that on Thursday nights at the dinner table after putting his kids to bed. He'd lay it all out and work through every individual piece of mail until the table was cleared. He cleared his throat. Are you... eating? She tapped her nails on the countertop, leaned up against it. She pressed her hip into the counter to see if she could feel a bruise. If she pushed hard enough, maybe she could. Yes. They said their goodbyes and hung up. She checked the pantry for something to eat, finding only a quarter loaf of moldy bread and a can of tuna fish. Her stomach churned. She filled the makeshift fly trap with honey water, turned on her sink tap again, and took the time to wash her face before washing the dishes. Doris opened her bedroom door. She moved her hand to the light switch, but couldn't convince herself to turn on the light. Flies were buzzing in her sheets. In the doorway, she took off her pencil skirt, her blazer, her turtleneck, her bra, until she stood bare in the dark. She inched towards the mattress and could hear the buzzing swell. She could make out faint black lines like linear static as the flies moved to the ceiling. She lay down on her bed, sheets pulled up to her chin, she let her eyes gloss over. She took some comfort in knowing the flies were on the ceiling. They would stay on the ceiling. She would wake up, and they would be there, still. The buzzing stopped. In the quiet, she felt as though she'd become fixed in the center of some new constellation. Once Doris's eyes adjusted to the light, she found the hordes of flies stagnant. Tar black specks scattered across the entirety of her periphery. Greta. Greta's father usually kept Greta from the ceremonies. He would give her farm work to do while him and his wife got dressed up. Wife in a floral dress that hemmed at her feet. A lace trim at the neck forming a white collar that seemed to negate anything beyond shallow breathing. Greta's mother would be quiet, sometimes croak when speaking too freely. Her father would wear his blue dress shirt, ironed by his wife. He'd clean the soil off his hands and clean-shave his face. 
His hair would be wet and wouldn't be completely dry until they were back at the farm in the late afternoon. Today, Greta would attend. She wore a white dress that started to collect grime on the hem as soon as they stepped outside. Her mother made a disapproving clicking noise with her tongue, shook her head. Her father let it go unacknowledged. They walked past the common grounds, all getting filthier and sweatier in the South American summer heat than they'd bargained for. The founders had built the ceremony hall in 1962. It was full, almost 200 heads, some sitting, some scrambling for seats by their families or closer to the front. Greta's family settled near the right-hand side. The white paint had been chipping off the walls for as long as she could remember, revealing brown brick. The ceiling had been crumbling. The floor was coated in a thin sheen of dust, falling in from all directions, flying up again as people paced across. Fold-out chairs took up every inch of space, but all pointed towards the podium. Maxim entered through the main entrance, and Greta could feel the community freezing in its tracks. Everyone left on their feet fell into the nearest fold-out chair. They beamed. She turned and found Maxim making his way to the podium. His eyes, a light blue, were downcast and vacant. He was now almost entirely bald. He would turn 50 later that year, but what remained of his hair was sparse and white. He reached the podium where he laid his hands atop the wood. Maxim exuded a sense of seniority, carried an infinite knowledgeability. There was even a hint of mischief there, something that suggested he knew more than he should more than Greta would ever uncover by reading the Holy Almanac, by learning how to treat wounds with maggots, by tending to cattle. Thank you all for coming. He leafed through the Holy Almanac, spread out on the podium. Today, I will read to you from this chapter here. I will read to you chapter 7. He smoothed the pages, audible, in a tangible kind of quiet, a heavy quiet that presses down, narrows. We must not disregard, as a community, the bindings that make us. We find our brothers and our sisters not only in one another, we hope to find them in every fly, for every one of them is a token of our connectivity, a blessing of good tidings, a gift from the up. We find our brothers and our sisters in the plants which we teach to grow, for they bear a promise that supersedes ours. Here, one must ask oneself, together with your brothers, your sisters, do you make up an entirety? Are you, together, a cycle? Families were lining up to speak to Maxim after his reading. When Greta's family reached him, he lifted up his hand and found a clumsy grip 
on Greta's chin. He tilted it from side to side as though he were examining it. His thumb dug into her jawbone. She half-closed her eyes, tensing up. So, you intend to become a medic, yeah? He asked. He covered her eyes with both hands and the bridge of her nose. She nodded, blinked below his hands. Yeah. He let go of her face and sounded a raspy laugh that then turned into a violent hacking into his cupped hands. He cleared his throat. You are a farmer's only daughter. You respect the crops, yeah? Without the flies, they will need this kindness. She nodded again. Yeah. He grinned for a second. Greta could see an empty slit in the lower half of his mouth, where one tooth was missing. Once they reached the farm, her father asked her to check on the cattle pen, to check the locks. First, she made her way back to the cornfield. There, none of the corn had grown, but the Venus flytrap had doubled in size. The redness had been replaced with a yellow hue, parched and undone. Greta turned her head to the cattle pen. When she turned back again, the flytrap had turned with her. Its yellowing mouth pried open, reaching for the cattle. Doris. Doris had been called to Dr. Abramovitz's office, where she sat down, and he told her they'd be going in another direction. She sat, dumbfounded. It's because of the flies, isn't it? She tensed up, her lower lip twitched. I can't seem to get rid of them. I, I tried traps. I tried honey, rotting meat. The flies won't leave. They can't leave. She looked out the window behind the doctor's chair. There was a full-grown sycamore there. She somehow remembered this. She tried to remember the patient files she transferred in the past few weeks. She tried to remember patient faces or names, but found all traces of it stripped from her memory. She remembered something the doctor had said about attachment, something about loving a kite once you've flown it. She imagined flying a kite. Her hands were too small. They were thinning out. She was scared of not cracking her knuckles. She'd somehow convinced herself that if she ever got too scared of cracking them, She'd know she didn't trust her body anymore. She tried to remember what she looked like when she still had her baby fat. She imagined flying not a kite, but a housefly fastened to a wire thread. She cracked the knuckles on her right hand. I feel like all food is just rotting constantly and nobody can, they can't. They can't see it, the rotting. 
He chuckled, bowing his head. Well, I can't say I've been seeing many flies lately. Summer is ending, everything's rotting, and yes, nobody's taking much note. I suppose a real tragedy, Doris, would be if you got hung up over everything rotting, or over the fact that my wife's too attached to the paper copies to keep going with this digitalization, really. You've done great work here. She leaned back. It isn't because of the flies. Flies are great regulators, Doris. It's all a cycle. Food is. Flies are. It's all connected. You did your job, Doris. Like flies do their job. It's all a cycle, is what it is. A cycle. When Doris left the office, carrying a box filled with unopened office supplies, she suddenly found her Toyota to be dead silent, heated up by the remains of summer, only creaking slightly when she sat herself down. All the flies, it seemed, had vanished. In their place remained a tangible kind of quiet, the heavy kind of quiet that presses down and narrows. Greta. The flies would come. Greta had, in the pen, found the eldest female goat, dead. It had died in the act of childbirth. Greta's parents had not told her. They had, instead, covered it up with a plastic tarp. Greta felt a need to protect the Venus flytrap on their farmland. It moved the way the Holy Almanac said her brothers and sisters would move, in synchrony, in unison. Greta dragged the goat from the pen out to the field, stumbling underneath its weight, tripping over uneven patches of grass. When she settled it on the ground, a few feet from the Venus flytrap, they came. She wiped the sweat from her forehead and looked up. A gritty black cloud leered, swarmed patches of ink, dotting the up. As they drew closer, she got to feel much bigger than herself. They neared, found places on the soil, on the goat, then on the flytrap's open jaw. The flytrap twitched, then clamped shut in a quarter second. The fly wrestled inside, and the trap closed even firmer, and the trap closed even firmer, closing the gap. Greta could almost live the experience of eating for the first time in weeks by being this close. She felt full-bellied. She felt fulfilled, like something had somehow started healing.
Colonia deserves a bit of context because, I mean, it's kind of a story within a story in a way because it's based around the Colonia Dignidad, which was a a colony, a German colony in Chile, which was um, played an especially important role during the Pinochet regime. Pinochet was a dictator who had power in Chile from, I believe, 1973 uh, to 1990. He was a dictator there, but after that, he continued to be the chief of military up until, I think, 98 or 99. And during this time, a German man who fled Germany on child molestation charges started this uh, colony, this essentially cult in Chile uh, called Colonia Dignidad. And there's multiple really interesting uh, things to seek out, um, I guess, works to seek out uh, that really taught me about the topic. Like, a really fantastic movie is um, El Casa del Lobo, which means the House of Wolves in Spanish, and is a movie about how this colony essentially was, of course, extremely problematic in being a kind of German-based colony in Chile in itself, where um, on top of that, a lot of um, war victims, like, um, I guess, enemies of war, like artists and, like, anyone who opposed the military regime were uh, also kept and tortured in secret, and they also ended up, I believe, um, developing weaponry in the colony in secret as well. Um, on top of this involvement in this, in the, in just the awful state of the military at the time, uh, the colony also had just a really problematic problematic setup inside of it. Like, the man who started it from Germany, Paul Schaefer, was really intent on being the most important figure to everyone in the colony. Uh, and he did, he kind of established this dominance by, for one, a story I read about was when he believed that the children in the colony were heralding Santa Claus, like they all loved Santa Claus, and he believed that they cared more for Santa Claus than they did for him. So he organized a public demonstration where a man um, dressed up as Santa Claus was killed in front of all the children, kind of just stuff like this. Um, yeah. uh, he continued to molest children at the colony, and I guess a big thing that I wanted to talk about in it is how colonization uh, really exists and has existed but continues to exist in so many forms and in so many different ways and how I think it's everyone's job in a way, everyone's um everyone's task to really explore and and learn about 
how every civilization, about how every person is t- is tied to colonization. Like, I wrote a lot about my own background because I am from Curacao, which is a small island off the coast of Venezuela. Like, on clear days, we can see the Venezuelan coast. And it lays in the Dutch Caribbean, which means that it was uh, colonized by the Dutch peoples, and uh, Dutch people continue to live there, and Dutch is one of the primary languages, and there is a lot of social disparity and different social expectations and just a lot of conflict between Italian people and uh, Dutch people, where I'm from. And having lived there for 10 years... And learning about things like, for example, when I went to a Dutch private school and we didn't learn the native language, but we taught we were taught French and we didn't learn about Curacao politics, but we had Dutch politics and we just had European history and European art. And there's just so much to unpack there. I think that having lived there and then here and learning about a lot about the indigenous peoples who I hadn't learned anything about at a Dutch private school where we learned about Dutch history, except minus the colonization part. Um, I think that it's just something that I like to consider in my writing, but something that I think should really be heavily considered, especially in fiction. Fiction can work as such a powerful kind of, mm, as such a powerful medium through which information and beliefs can travel, both in a good way and an awful way. Yeah, I think especially, I guess, I want to, I just want to say that if you write that right now, I believe that At any time in history, like, the present is the most important time for uh, post-colonial fiction, post-colonial writing, because I think a lot of people who I've talked to are uh, stuck in this belief that we're in a post-colonial time, which is... As far as I know it, very much not true. And I think that um, we can all, that creatively we can all come a long way by um, creating this discussion more accessible and creating this discussion more open and really stressing how important the subject matter is because everyone, we are all creatively, non-creatively, whatever, we are all tied to this past in some way or other, and that's pretty much all I have. Uh, Thank you for listening to my stories.
For more stories from Gina Hay, check out the upcoming issue of Prism International and other local authors in This Side of the West, the University of Victoria's undergraduate literary journal. This episode of Play on Words was produced by Katie Denslow with help from Oren Levine, Coco Nielsen, and Reese Huber. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Play on Words is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the BC Gaming Society. If you like what you heard, tune in next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you'll love Play on Words' two-part radio drama called Fractured Identity. Hey, give me your ear. Let's, uh... Let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Um, hi, my name is Katie Denslow, and I'm the producer of Play on Words here at CFUV 101.9 FM. And I have had so much fun working on the podcast, creating a story and producing the episode in a way that I think has been able to allow the listener to go on that journey with us of discovery and questioning. And I think anyone who listens to the podcast will find they get something different from it. And that's something that I think is really cool about the experimental aspect of it is being able to play with how a story is told even. And with podcasts specifically, sound being such an integral element of how that story is told and playing with that is something that I've really, really enjoyed. I think one of the things that I've enjoyed learning the most is how much I personally, at least, have ignored the sense of sound and listening and hearing in my life. And this has really allowed me to investigate that area of my being. And I think I have gained such a greater appreciation for how sound impacts myself and everyone, I would say. And it's so cool to tell a story through just sound. And there's so many different ways of doing so. And there's so many different ways of impacting a listener through sound, which is something that I've found so interesting. And again, with Play on Words being an experimental podcast, it's been so fun to play with sound and play on words (laughs) we really really I think got really playful and got weird and it was uh, really interesting and fun Mm -hmm.